All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to the draft board. David and Tyson hanging out with you, as always, and we hope you've been having a good week. Tyson, how's your week? My week's been good. You know, uh, still in school, kind of getting to point that final stretch, and we're getting to that time of the year where lots of assignments are due and uh, exams are coming up. So, we might not have a podcast episode for next week, but you know, other than that, I've been doing pretty good. Wait a second, Tyson. You signed a blood oath to commit your life to this podcast. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, fortunately, folks, we're not on th- that sort of a production schedule. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But my week, Tyson, was filled with March Madness. And as a lot of people who know me know, I'm a very young basketball fan. I have probably said on this show before that I only started being interested in basketball in 2018, three years ago. And of course the NBA came first, as is often the case with people like me. But college basketball is a gem that I have come to appreciate big time, especially over this last week and a half. I managed to watch every game of the Final Four, men's and women's. And I am very glad that I did, because honestly there was quality basketball on both sides and what am i talking about well first of all let's go to the women's championship i'm gonna give a shout out to stanford university winning their first ncaa tournament since 1992 but take a look at the score line 54 53 Mm. over the three-seeded arizona wildcats and their senior guard ari mcdonald five six has never let that stop her Averaged 21.7 points over the course of her college career and declared for the NBA draft earlier today. It was a great game and a phenomenal effort by both these teams. Wow, that's really good. That's a, a good quality game. And congratulations to Stanford and uh, Tara Vanderveer. She's a Hall of Fame head coach. and Winningest of all time. She passed past Summit earlier in the tournament. Did she? She did. Wow. You know, congratulations. That's incredible. Yeah, and just looking up her, her record and it's 1,125 wins wow. to 255 losses. That's incredible. That's a win percentage of like 81.5%. Over a sample size over 1,300. That's... Yeah, that's incredible. That's that's many, many years of basketball and wow, that's incredible. Congrats just to her and congrats to the uh, team of Stanford. And you know what the funny thing is... Tyson, it wasn't, it was, rather, it was Stanford's second one-point game in a row, because in the semifinal round, they squeaked past North Carolina, South Carolina, excuse me, 66 to 65, and folks, I'm telling you guys about this, because if you don't watch March Madness, like, this is why people think it's special, because even though there are 30-point blowouts between unevenly matched teams, there are also upsets like we talked about before. And there's also movie-worthy stuff. Yeah. Like, both of both of these games. Let me tell you about Stanford-South Carolina. Tyson, did you watch that game? I did not. Unfortunately, I had something else up. Right. So, here's what happened. Last few seconds, it was a one-point margin. Stanford had called a timeout, if I remember correctly, and they inbounded their ball to their freshman center, Cameron Brink, who got trapped and stripped of the ball. Oh. And Stanford... Sorry, South Carolina, with seconds left, pushed it down the court. One of their other players, I believe her name is Beal. I apologize if I got that wrong, but... So she went for a contested layup, missed, 
which left Aaliyah Boston, one of the best bigs in all of women's college basketball, with a point-blank putback with one second left, and that bounced off the back iron, and that's how Stanford survived. Wow. Wow. That's really close. (laughs) Just one shot off the back iron, like, millimeters, and that game is different. Millimeters, right? It was... It was sensational, and again, the there, there was also controversy. The Baylor-UConn no-call at the end after UConn went on a 19-0 run to put themselves in position to win, but Baylor didn't give up, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, as if you watched, you know that Arizona, quote-unquote, upset Connecticut. I, I'm not so sure you can call them really the underdog. I've seen what they did to Stanford, mm-hmm. but you know what? Paige Beckers and Leah Boston and all these, Ari McDonald, obviously, these, I'm t- I'm just honestly really glad that women's basketball is on the rise and the presence of these young stars who are growing in popularity, who possess talent and they and their teams are, are more than capable, as we've been talking about, of delivering high quality, entertaining basketball is a, is a big win and I'm looking forward to, I'm so excited for March Madness next year, man. Yeah, it's always exciting and you always get these crazy games and these last second shots and, and you know, the last, the, the team with the last shot usually gets the win is usually how it goes and it's very exciting, very intense back and forth basketball and with young players, who, who knows what could happen, right? So it's always exciting and it's always fun and and yeah, there's a lot of great moments that happen every year in March Madness. And another one of these iconic moments, although it is iconic for an entirely different reason, is the dismantling that the Baylor Bears put on the Gonzaga Bulldogs for the men's side of the championship. Now, Tyson, you were rooting for the Zags, and they unfortunately were not able to get it done. Yeah, I was rooting for the Zags. You know, they're usually a kind of an underdog going into most tournaments, not this year because they were undefeated. But most times, you know, they're a smaller school from uh, the West Coast Conference, so not a very popular conference in terms of, you know, uh, big school popularity. They're from Spokane, Washington, which is not a traditional recruiting powerhouse so to speak so they oftentimes don't get those first second overall type of recruits coming through their programs and when they do Jalen Suggs is going to get drafted right and that's what's going to happen so when we see like Gonzaga kind of go into the tournament they're a good basketball program and and their coach has been there for a long time now so that's really good for them to kind of make it to those steps but they've never won it in their history of being a school and I was always recruiting them and Usually Gonzaga has quite a few uh, Canadians on the team, so... Like Andrew Nemhart this time around. Right, so they they usually have some players that I at least root for, so that's why I cheer for Gonzaga every tournament, but uh, unfortunately they they ran into a team that we saw on the court. Baylor was the better team. And I, I will just say for the record, I could not bring myself to root for Drew Timmy's mustache. You don't like his stash? I, I, no, I do not like that mustache at all. Granted, he pulls it off better than I would, but <laughs> anyways, that's just, a, that's just a humorous aside. Let us now actually talk about the game, and mm-hmm. as you know, Tyson, Gonzaga went into that championship game 31-0, and and they fell short of finishing an undefeated season with a national championship. But not just that. Look at this stat line. 86-70. 
was the score that Baylor won by. Mm-hmm. At no point in the game did the Bulldogs have a lead. Ooh. And also that 70 points scored was well off their season scoring average 91 points per game. The Baylor Bears were a buzzsaw on Monday. Yeah, the game was all Baylor. And like you said, they never trailed. And I think that really shows like the quality of team that Baylor is. And and you know Butler, he's going to be going to the NBA, and and they have a few other players that I think are kind of in that range of being drafted for for the NBA. So, you know they're a good team and and they're well coached. And this was a year that Baylor was definitely one of the premier schools in the in the year. And I personally didn't have them winning at all, but you never know. Like in the March Madness tournament, who's going to make it out of those first few rounds? So, but you know Baylor proved it to everybody. They were the best team this year. Now, the rise, or rather the resurrection of the Baylor Bears is actually our feel-good story mm. as well that we are going to open up the broadcast with. And Now, this is not necessarily a feel-good story if you're a Gonzaga fan. No. I understand that, but once you've had some time to commiserate if you're a Zags fan, I would simply ask you to consider the fact that the Bears, too, had never won the NCAA tournament, and this was their first ever. Not only that, the first for all of Texas since 1966, which is shocking for a state with 29 million on residents. Wow, first first in Texas since 66? That is incredible. That is what my research showed me. Well, because, like, Texas usually has quite a few good schools, and, like, there are good, good players that come out of Texas. Kevin Durant was part of the University of Texas. And that's that was like that's his alma mater. So it's not like Texas or Baylor or, or SMU or Houston can't recruit good basketball players because they do. And you know, a lot of people think of Texas as a football sport first, and rightfully so. But Texas definitely also has a lot of quality basketball players in their state too. Shocking stat, isn't it? In- incredible. I'm surprised that it's been that long. Now let's take a look back at Baylor's season this year. Like you said. They and Gonzaga were viewed as the top two teams in the country, and this season Baylor got off to a 17-0 start, which was the best in school history. However, like many other teams, they experienced a COVID hiatus. Theirs was three weeks in length, and afterwards they it led them to a shaky win over Iowa State, which was considered a far inferior opponent, and after that they lost to Kansas. Around this point in the year, the Bears' formerly number one ranked defense dropped as low as number 44 on some ranking boards. That was fairly shocking, and they lost the Big 12 semifinals to Oklahoma State. Mm. Oh, they did? Yeah, they they did. And it's definitely not the road that Gonzaga traveled juggernauting through everyone, (laughs) but obviously... Actually, we're not even gonna not even saying that first. But did you know that even though the Bears were the best three-point shooting games teams rather in the country, they made collectively just 30 of 84 from beyond the arc in the first four games of March Madness. 30 of 84 as a team. That's that's tough. It's tough to win when. Or you're, at least fr- from the starters. Yeah, that's that's tough to win when you're not shooting. You know. That's less than 40%, I believe. So, yeah, that's... We're not math majors here, but... But, yeah, it's it's tough to win when you're not shooting the three ball well because, 
you know, a, a, a two a two going in and a three going in, it's a big difference. Not just in terms of like analytics side and, and points scored, but in terms of momentum. You know, there there are few things that get a team emotionally energized than a deep three or a dunk. And in college basketball, not everybody can dunk because you know you don't quite have the athletes, and that makes sense. But yeah, for for teams that you know, there are a lot of teams in like for particularly Iowa, Iowa is a team that relied on the three ball to do well. And when the three ball wasn't going and they found themselves losing the game. And ultimately that's kind of why Iowa, even though they're number two seed, got upset in the tournament. So it's tough to win when you're not shooting the three ball well. And I think that's kind of the way the NBA is going as well. Now, having said all of that, Baylor's last two games were certainly more than impressive. A 78-59 annihilation of the two-seed Houston Cougars in the semifinals, and then, of course, like we said, the 86-70 over Gonzaga. But what a lot of people may not know, Tyson, Mm -hmm. is that the Baylor Bears as a men's basketball program has overcome far, far more than just a COVID-related loss of rhythm this year. And we have to go back to June of 2003, where okay. this story starts, where former ba- Baylor player Carlton Dotson murdered his teammate Patrick Dennehy. What? Murdered. Shot. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Yikes. And after Patrick Dennehy's body was found, Dotson subsequently admitted to the act and was sentenced to 35 years in prison. I guess you can say that they weren't very close-knit on the team together. <laughs> In terms of dark humor, that would certainly be the case, but... <laughs> wow, that's... I've never heard of a situation where teammates get so angry with each other that, like, it leads to murder? Like, that's a that's excessive. There must have been something else going there, on. There was a variety of things going on. What I did What I did look into just a little bit was that people close to the situation also said that Patrick Dennehy's own behavior began to change in the period of time leading up to this. So there were clearly issues there that we were not going to get into on this episode, but mm-hmm. certainly was not something that probably came out of the blue by, by all likelihood. But wait, there's more. There's more? There's a whole lot more. Ooh. So this horrible murder mm-hmm. was the impetus for a scandal okay. that Baylor's basketball program was plunged into because an NCAA investigation revealed later on that their former head coach, Dave Bliss, violated NCAA rules by paying Dennehy's tuition because the team was out of scholarships for that year. Oh, no. Patrick Dennehy wasn't even supposed to be there. He wasn't even supposed to be there, but the coach was paying his tuition and they ran out of the scholarships? Like, that's why they couldn't give them They a- were, they, they were, they had expended all their scholarships, and Dave Bliss, to make up the difference, paid for De- for the cost of Dennehy's schooling, and he did it with a second player, too, okay. named Corey Herring. Now, with Corey Herring, he tried to pressure Herring's mother to testify falsely that he had not paid for the, for the young man's tuition, Corey Herring himself was under the false impression that he was on a scholarship. He wasn't. And in order to deflect blame from himself, 
Dave Bliss tried to frame Patrick Dennehy as a drug dealer. Oh? What? That is... Wow, that's that's crazy. You can't make this stuff up. That's... Wow. No, you, you can't. And needless to say, Bliss resigned on uh, August 8th, <laughs> 2003. He <clears throat> not exactly had a future in Baylor after all of this came to light. I, I'd be surprised if he's anywhere in college basketball anymore. No, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I would certainly hope not. Mm-hmm. I would certainly hope not. But anyways, for these and other violations, such as uh, failing to report positive drug tests, that's also a red flag. Oops. Baylor's basketball program faced a series of both self-imposed and NCAA-imposed sanctions. Now, these included a probation period lasting until June 2010, so a seven-year probation period. They were banned from the postseason in 03-04, the season after then he was murdered. They had no non-conference games for two years. Wow. A reduction in scholarships that lasted four years after this investigation, and various other financial and recruiting restrictions. Now, for some reason, a man was willing to take the Baylor head coaching job in August 2003, weeks after Bliss was let go. That man's name is Scott Drew. He's a Kansas City, Missouri native. And at his introductory press conference, he not only promised that Baylor would survive, he called a shot and said that he would turn them into a national championship team. Wow. In all of this. Wow, that's incredible. It is, and what's even more incredible, five years later in 2008, the Bears returned to the NCAA tournament. And they did so for the first time since 1988. They lost in the first round to Purdue, 90 to 79. I don't think anybody really cared about that because they were back. And let me share with you guys their record since then. In 2010, they made the Elite Eight. In 2012, they made the Elite Eight. In 2014, they made the Sweet 16. 2015, 2016, they were first round teams. 2017, Sweet 16, 2019, second round, COVID wiped out last year, and 2021, they are the national champions. That is why we're calling this the Feel Good Story of the Week. Wow, that's incredible. And Scott Drew has been there ever since. This is his 18th year. Yeah. He's been there ever since. Interestingly enough, he began his coaching career as an assistant in in Indiana, in the state of Indiana, at uh, Valparaiso University. I apologize if I mispronounced that. Alongside his dad. Homer Drew, and he even became Valparaiso's head coach after Homer retired in 2002. So, wow. And interestingly enough, he is known for his positive, upbeat demeanor. He coined this acronym, Joy, Jesus, Others, Yourself, and that is what he preaches mm-hmm. to his team. And Jared Butler, a guy you alluded to earlier, recalled his one of his recruiting trips to Baylor, and he said essentially that Scott Drew was constantly upbeat, almost annoyingly so. Mm. So this was the energy and the culture that he brought into Baylor, and you have to imagine that that kind of, like, in some ways bordering on delusion, Mm -hmm. that kind of positivity was, along with a lot of other things, the formula that the Bears needed to return to where they are now. Wow. That's such a cool rise of story kind of like that 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 rise from the ashes type of narrative and this is the kind of stuff that i'm sure like eventually you know movies will be made about poems will be written about 
and and that kind of you know all that cliche stuff. The poets will sing of this for ages. Right, but like, you know, it's so cool to see like this team go from such low depths of like murder and drug use and recruiting violations and lying and trying to pressure people into you know giving false testimonies before court to now completing completely changing the culture around the university and around the basketball program that it's gotten to the point where it's actually a, a good place to be around and and it's significantly distanced itself from that that heritage and that scandal and wow it's really cool to see that rise from all of those NCAA sanctions uh, I just googled it and it said like the sanctions for this basketball program were like some of the harshest that it's ever laid Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Besides uh, what was happened in, in the 80s with the death penalty for the SMU. And, like, the death penalty is essentially, like, you play no games, you get no scholarships, you don't exist for a year. Wait, the, I thought the death penalty was summary execution for the entire team. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, not quite. But, it's like, that's the death penalty. It's like, you play no games, you get no scholarships, and you get no game, like, and then you, there's sanctions after that as well, and mm. like that is like that is the harshest stuff because all your players they don't want to sit out for a year so they transfer, yep. and then you lose all your players and you can't recruit new players and like SMU used to be a very good football program and like Eric Dickerson high school football player came from SMU in that team, but yeah the like, Rams legend yeah the Rams legend Hall of Famer so like when you think about it in that sense like. The SM like Baylor University was on the brink of getting the death penalty and potentially going into the abyss. They were, but instead they 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 ascended <laughs> from that abyss. You could you could rename them the Baylor Phoenix and would not at all be <laughs> be inappropriate. No. But having said that, we have to switch gears now to our second subject, <laughs> one that is considerably more sobering than the success story that we've just told you folks about. And that, of course, is the Calgary Flames, the the 2021 iteration of the Calgary Flames. Now, many of you folks know that I am a Flames fan. They are not in a good spot right now. As of Tuesday morning here on on April the 6th, they are 16, 21, and 3, eight points back of fourth place Montreal for the final playoff spot. Montreal also has five games in hand due to a COVID interruption a few weeks ago. Calgary has lost four straight and eight of their last nine. Not what you want to see (laughs) in a critical juncture of the regular season. This puts them solidly in sixth place in the seven-team North Division. And let's take a quick look back at what got them here over Easter weekend. They lost 3-2 to Edmonton on Good Friday, despite being up 2-1 at one point. So they had an opportunity, couldn't capitalize. Mm-hmm. Next on Easter Sunday, they played your Toronto Maple Leafs, again built a 2-1 lead, again gave up a tying goal late in the second, and again lost the game. This time, <laughs> 4-2. On Monday night, they played Toronto again. You watched that game. Why don't you tell us what you saw there? So what happened in that game is that Toronto got out to a 2-0 lead. And then Calgary was able to fight back and make it a real good game. And at some points, like, I would say that Calgary Flames were kind of controlling the game and controlling the period and kind of controlling the flow. They fought back from 2-0 and they tied it at 2-2, I believe. Then Toronto scored and then Toronto got on the power play. But Toronto's power play had been absolutely terrible. And Calgary scored a shorthanded goal to make it 3-3. 
in the third period. And a shorthanded goal is usually a giant momentum swing. Usually a giant momentum swing, and it seemed like at that point everything was going right for Calgary, and Toronto couldn't do anything on the power play. They were kind of struggling and fumbling in their own zone, and it was kind of a frustrating time for Toronto. So Sheldon Keefe, the head coach, called a timeout there after that shorthanded period or shorthanded goal, and it seemed to kind of rejuvenate and change up uh, kind of how the Leafs were playing. And they were able to put a goal in on the power play, and then shortly later, Toronto got another one, kind of off of a good bounce. But and the, so a five-three result. Five-three win for Toronto after Calgary, in my opinion, was the better p- team for the majority of the game. I wouldn't say like all 60 minutes they were the better team, but you know, for at least 35, 40 minutes of the 60 minutes, Calgary was the better team in leading the play, but they just didn't get the result that they wanted to, and. Unfortunately, they ended the night with a loss. Now, that result and that series of events dovetails quite well with what Milan Lucic said back in mid-February. He said that Calgary was a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde team, and that has certainly remained true, not only with what you said, that the Flames just losing momentum after they had grabbed it in a seemingly convincing manner. Mm -hmm. They have done this time and again in various games this season. They have not won more than three in a row all season. And according to the Athletic and Tankathon, the Flames have a better chance of obtaining this year's number one pick than making the playoffs at this point. (laughs) 1% chance to make the playoffs, 7.5% chance of the number one pick. That's not a great outlook. No. If you kind of look at the points percentage for for the North, uh, the Leafs are going to be in the playoffs. Their point percentage is, uh, they're projected to get over 70 points. The Jets, the Oilers, and the Canadians are all kind of hovering around that 69, 69 and a half for points. If, so if those teams kind of do what they've been doing for what they've done so far into this season, kind of just continue on, uh, they'll hit about 69, 70 points. Uh, if the Calgary Flames go undefeated the rest of the year, they're only able to hit... 67 points. Writings on the wall. I, I would say so. It looks like the Calgary Flames are firmly in that, you know, time to sell and move assets and kind of get some, get some draft picks maybe for some of your players. But before talking about that, I wanted to discuss some of the issues, I think, that has really killed this team in the second half. And unfortunately, part of it is Jacob Markstrom, who has really faltered after a strong start to the year. Markstrom signed for six years and $36 million last summer as Calgary's franchise goalie, but he ended March, get this, he ended March on an 11-game stretch allowing 2.91 goals against average and just an 88.4 save percentage, 88.4%. And if you don't know hockey, 90% is kind of that floor for a serviceable starting goalie in the NHL. If you are in the 80s, that is not a good look particularly if it is over a 10-12 game stretch. He was also in net for the Good Friday loss, and he was the one that allowed the five goals in the Monday loss to Toronto. Yeah, so for reference, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs last year had Michael Hutchinson as their backup, and in like 13 games uh, for playing, Michael Hutchinson had a save percentage of 8.84. And that was to the point where it was just not good enough, and the Leafs weren't able to win games with Hutchinson in net. So they traded for Jack Campbell to be a new backup goalie. They and Campbell has more wins than the Sabers. Yeah, and Cam- Jack. Oh my goodness gracious! Nine in a row this season, which is incredible. He's been he's been excellent this season, and I didn't think anybody saw that coming. 
But when you look at like what Hutchinson did last year, it was good enough to be pushed out of the league. He wasn't even good enough to be a backup. And those are the numbers that Markstrom put up in March. Now, having said that, Markstrom should be fine in the long term. Every goalie goes through a rough stretch, and it's far too early to write him off. But his periodic struggles expose the Flames' lack of offense. Check this out. Their Flames have been scoring 2.57 goals per game, roughly around there. That's bottom 10 in the mm. NHL. A few episodes ago, we talked about how the Flames might struggle to keep up with these big guns in the North Division based solely on the production of their star players. And that has ended up being the case. 2.57 goals per game is not a good mark, but they allow around three goals per game. That equals losing, and that unfortunately (laughs) has taken place. Now, when Daryl Sutter was asked recently about how to get his players to score more, he gave a quote that I think is the crux of the issue. Daryl said... Well, it's either in their DNA or it isn't. Oh. And, and frankly, I think that's that's the truth. I am not convinced that winning a cup, making a deep playoff run is in the DNA of this particular version of the Calgary Flames. And as we've said before, Tyson, it's not just due to one bad year mm-hmm. or two inconsistent years, but this has been going on for five or six years with this largely the same core. Hmm. Now, to be clear, I don't intend to hate on anybody. Obviously, that's not what we're about here at the draft board. And if you look at Johnny Gaudreau, Sean Monaghan, Matthew Kachuk, Elias Lindholm, Markstrom, Giordano, Tanev, the talent here is undeniable. On paper, many thought that the Flames could be one of the top four teams in the North Division this year, and it simply has not translated. You know, what do you think about that, Tyson? Yeah, there are two different philosophies when you think about the Calgary Flames. There, there are people who think that this team, constructed as is, has enough talent to win a Stanley Cup, but they just need to get going, and they need to get right, and they need to kind of, so, so to speak, wake up and start playing the way that they know that they can play. Like Johnny Gaudreau getting to that point where he's like 95, 100 points kind of range. Um, Sean Monaghan, point per game, 30 goals. That's kind of where people kind of expected these players to be. Matthew Kachuk, 90 points, being a pest, being a pain in the butt. Being physical. Being physical, getting getting under teams' opponent's skin and lighting the lamp and scoring goals. I think that's kind of where a lot of people kind of look at that and kind of go, this team has the chance to, to be a really good team and be a contender, especially with some good goaltending. But then there are some other people that look at the situation in the Flames roster and they go, nope. Johnny Gaudreau, he's not good enough. Sean Monaghan, he's not good enough. Mark Giordano, he's 37. You know, he's not getting any younger, he's not getting any better. And those are the people that are kind of of the opinion that the Calgary Flames, as they're constructed, are not able to win a Stanley Cup. And they need to restart and they need to rebuild. And Johnny Gaudreau, Sean Monaghan, Noah Hannafin, they all gotta go. And that's a scary thought, I think, for Flames fans. And I, I saw this on a, a comment on one of the podcasts, the SDPN. comment was is that they said, the Calgary Flames of today are exactly like the Calgary Flames that had the old Jerome McGinley, but instead of an older Jerome McGinley, it's an older Mark Giordano. 
What do you think about that one, David? That is... I'll be honest, from a, a purely gut reaction, I think that's fairly true. Mm. I think that Jerome McGinley kept some very mediocre Flames teams afloat, but clearly those teams did not have the talent to make a ton of noise in the playoffs, and a lot of it, you know, if you go back to it, Damon Lankow was getting older, and then his career was interrupted by a massive neck injury. Oli Jokinen, by the time he was in Calgary, was a far from the 90-point guy the Flames thought they were getting, although he was still a fairly solid second liner for a number of years. Jay Bomeister, for whatever reason, he he had to carry a very heavy load. Frankly, a lot of people hate on Jay Bomeister. I don't think that's fair, given that he was a top four defenseman on a cup-winning Blues team and a top four defenseman on a gold medal-winning Canada team. Mm-hmm. I, the second one for me is even more impressive, but there were situations where I remember years ago in the mid-2010s, Jay Bomeister had to play with Chris Butler. Not exactly my idea of an <laughs> NHL-caliber top four defenseman there, and there was just a lot of, and again, a lot of other issues. Matt Stajan turned into a fourth-liner when he came to Calgary. So on and so forth. The Dion Phaneuf trade, which let that to happen, didn't really do anything. And Alex Tange started struggling with injuries, and he, he got did. and he got older, right? It, it was obviously it's not an apples to apples comparison, but the truth is the Flames haven't won a playoff series since 2015. Now, granted, the win over the Canucks to me it's almost as satisfying as a Stanley Cup win. <laughs> a lot of Calgary Flames fans would agree, but man. I'm not high on Johnny Gaudreau or Sean Monaghan either. I think that we have given them a very fair shake, and in the long run, they have failed to pan out as anything more than serviceable second liners. And the issue is we needed one or both of them to be bona fide first liners, and that I don't think is the case. Both have had their ice time and production decrease in their first eight games under Daryl Sutter. Mm. And that doesn't surprise me at all, because Sutter, as we've said before, he's a hard-nosed defense-first coach. He's not going to be a fan of passive, one-dimensional players who struggle with not just inconsistency with scoring, but consistency in effort from an outsider's point of view is a problem that Gaudreau and Monaghan seem to have. For whatever reason, that might be the case. But not just that. I remember you talking about the expected production for them a few minutes ago. Gaudreau, 90-plus points. Monaghan, at least close to a point per game. Let me tell you what has actually taken place. Gaudreau is on pace for 38 points in 55 games this year. Well, well off a point per game, let alone 90 yeah, over 82. Well, well, yeah, that's not good enough. And Monaghan is on pace for 33 points in 53 games. And again, well, well off a, the, even the 70-point the pace that, in my opinion, was sort of the floor for a guy like that. Mm-hmm. 33 and 53, 38 and 55, that's not... Again, that's that's okay if you're a second liner. These guys are not second liners. We've seen in previous playoff runs that neither one has a reputation for being consistently disciplined and doing the little things to affect the game when the puck isn't going in. Mm-hmm. I read a comment on social media last week that essentially said someone said that if Johnny Gaudreau had his his skills but Zach Hyman's approach to the game of hockey, mm. he would be a easily a top ten winger. What do you think? That's interesting. That 
that idea that like like Zach Hyman for those of you who may not know he's this grit grinder two-way forward kind of a player who is like 100% effort like 50% skill like he's got some skill and like a hundred a hundred constant percent concentrated power of will to throw a uh, uh-huh. Mike Shinoda reference in there but like he's he's an exceptional uh player when he's like driving the ball or driving the puck and fighting in the corners and being in front of the net and hounding defensemen and forechecking and that's what he's really good at and that's why Zach Hyman plays on the first or second line on Toronto not because he's there to score goals not because he's there to make these fancy assists he is kind of that guy that goes into the corners gets the puck and then gets the puck to Mitchell Marner or Austin Matthews and lets them do their magic that they do. Kind of like the role that young Milan Lucic played with the Boston Bruins of the, tw- of the early 2010s. Yeah, like go out there, hit some players, get the puck, pass it to Bergeron or Krejci, and, and let the skill guys take over from there. Now, granted, Lucic in his prime was a 30-goal, 50-, 60-point guy, so he, has more, he had more skill than Hyman, but nonetheless, the complimentary sandpaper, to use a hockey cliché, Right, that's what Zach Hyman is, and I would agree. I personally would agree with that comment that was made that if Johnny Gaudreau was listen, he's 160 pounds. He's not. He's not equipped to play physically in the NHL, but if he had a, a scrappier, grittier mental approach, if he didn't allow tight physical play and intense playoff style hockey to stifle him as much as it does Hmm. i think he could have been the superstar the calgary needed but that's not who he is now let's talk about matthew kachuk the new brad marchand as a lot of people think and frankly as a flames fan i've seen him lose his head on a number of occasions and i i believe that he needs to learn to play on the line, but not over it. And that hasn't really taken place this year to the extent that it needs to. Mm. His scoring pace is also very disappointing compared to what you said. He's on pace for 39 points in 55 games. Again, a second liner at best kind of a pace. And as someone making $7 million a year for the next few years, he really needs to get it together. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, even though Daryl Sutter has cut Kachuk's usage more than any other forward on the roster, he still said, I gotta play him more, that's on me. Bit of a bit of a paradoxical statement, but I think it's a bit less surprising given that with Kachuk, he at least is someone who tries to battle mm-hmm. when things get tough. He doesn't he will never become a wallflower. He will never just skate a shift just to skate a shift. He'll at least try to fight for you. His his issue is, I think, picking his spots and battling in a way that's perhaps more effective. But nonetheless, we, we need to see more from him in the years to come. Yeah, I think so. And I think, like, Kachuk was kind of part of that RFA uh, group of people like Mitch Marner and Miko Rantanen, where they all kind of came out of their entry-level deals at the same time. And they all negotiated their RFAs, and this is when restricted free agents were getting paid big money. And Matthew Kachuk, he wanted to be the highest paid flame. And right now, it's kind of tough to say that he's earning that paycheck, as you kind of talked about. And with Matthew Kachuk, you're right. Like, he brings a high intensity to games, and sometimes that intensity is over the line. But what I've noticed with Matthew Kachuk is oftentimes he's attempting to try and be that best player that guy that kind of gets under your opponent's skin. Exactly. But 
teams are getting used to it, specifically in the North Division. Like, I know, for example, Toronto wouldn't even engage with Matthew Kachuk. Like, after the whistle, Matthew Kachuk would grab one of the Leafs players' jerseys and drag him around for a little bit and start yelling at him. And, like, the Leafs defensemen just wouldn't care. Like, they'd be like, yeah, this is what Matthew Kachuk does. He's not going to do anything else to me. I'm not going to be, you know, targeted on a hit or whatever. Matthew Kachuk, he's going to kind of just, he's going to run around and do what he wants to do and maybe be a little bit undisciplined at times. And we're just going to ignore it. And that's not going to feed him. Because the worst thing that I think you can do is, like, with Matthew Kachuk, is feed into what he does. Like, for example, with what Zach Cassian did a couple of years ago that kind of reignited that Oilers-Flames rivalry. I remember that. That was fireworks. Right, where you had Matthew Kachuk versus Zach Cassian, and Zach Cassian was going after him, and Kachuk was taking shots at him in the media and stuff like that. Like, that kind of stuff, I think, really gets Matthew Kachuk going. And when the team isn't there to respond to Matthew Kachuk's probing, I don't think he's nearly as effective of a player. No. And I think that he might have to learn to deal with it, essentially, as Brad Marchand has. Granted, I'm not sure if Matthew Kachuk will ever have as much talent as Marchand, who Mm. is capable of 95 points a year playing penalty kill one and power play one. But, yeah, he's definitely the kind of guy that needs to feed off of somebody in order to get going and make his maximum impact on the game. I did want to quickly talk about a guy that I think is a little bit under the radar in in Calgary, at least in terms of what people talk about, is that for me, Elias Lindholm oh. is the best scoring forward that Calgary has right now. He's certainly producing at a higher clip this year. He's on pace for 45 points in 55 games, so the production has been a solid step above Monaghan and Gaudreau. He can play wing and center. He is a capable two-way forward. And in my opinion, he impacts the game in a two-way manner far more consistently than someone like Sean Monaghan. So ideally, I would like to see some players go this offseason, and we'll talk about that later, but I would not want Elias Lindholm to be one of them unless the return is quite significant. That's interesting. I, I like what Elias Lindholm has done this year. I actually have a little bit of a different take on who I really like from the Flames this year. I think the best Flame player this year has been Andrew Mangiapane. Not Joaquin Nordstrom? No. I'm just kidding. Keep no, talking. not Joaquin Nordstrom. I think Andrew Mangiapane has been the most consistent goal scorer for the Flames this year. And he's playing with Elias Lindholm a lot. And kind of that, I think Matthew Kachuk too. But like kind of that... I, I like Andrew Mangiapane. It seems like every game he gives good effort. He's going out there. He's hounding the puck. He's in front of the net, and he's getting goals kind of in and around that net front presence. You know, he's not like... And a, despite being 5'10", 184, he's willing to go to the front of the net with regularity. Yeah, he's going to those dirty, greasy areas to get goals, uh, unlike Johnny Gaudreau, where I think, like, Johnny Gaudreau's happy place, so to speak, is playing on the perimeter. Of course. Not getting too dirty, not getting knocked down, whereas Andrew Mangiapane has no problem getting knocked down as long as he gets the goal in before. Mm-hmm. So, and and that's just a, a different mentality that I, I've liked about Andrew Mangiapane, and I think he's been a very good flame this year, and I like what he's brought to the table. Uh, you know, like you said with Elias Lindholm, 
he's a really good two-way player, and his defensive abilities has been really underrated this year. And he's capable of scoring at at least a 70-point clip over a full season. Yeah, and I I like that. Andrew Mangiapane, I think for me, I like goals and I like offense. And for me, like he's gotten 12 goals so far this season. That's on pace for 24 goals this year. Uh, over an 82-game season or so. So I like that, and I think that he's been a surprising flame for me because I mostly thought he was kind of just this, you know, third-line winger. But it's it's proving to me, like, he's a good top-six forward on any team, let alone a losing team. But I think, he's a, I think he's been the best flame as of late. I would fully agree with you on that. It's just that, again, he's not one of the biggest names, and so that's why... A lot of people don't necessarily talk about him that much, especially people who aren't in Calgary. But even though earlier I was focusing my discussion on sort of those big names that get heavily scrutinized, I think that Andrew Manjapani is exactly who you've described him to be. It's very, very inspiring, honestly, to see a player of that modest size by NHL standards not only have skill, but be willing to get his hands dirty in order to impact the game in a variety of ways. And he was drafted in the sixth round, 166th overall back in 2015. That is, you're right to say surprising because sixth round pick is not expected to do anything approaching what he's done for this team. And and, and then Sam Bennett was drafted fourth overall, go figure, right? That's, that's sports drafting. That's mm-hmm. the crapshoot that it is. But yes, I, I certainly hope that Manjapani sticks around, and I would have mixed feelings, certainly, if he got traded, because I don't think that he's a guy that you need to move on from at all. A couple more, couple more before we move on to the sort of the question of who might actually move before the trade deadline, because trade deadline is next Monday. It is uh, on the 12th. Six days. Yep. And before we get into that, though, Mark Giordano, Rasmus Anderson. Mm. Two people I want to touch on very quickly. Like you said, Giordano is 37. He's on pace for 24 points and a minus 13. But because of his age, I don't think we can necessarily be surprised by that or necessarily blame him from that. He's, his prime is over. It's probably near the end. He'll play a few more years, but not as a top-pairing defenseman anymore. My question, Tyson, mm-hmm. is how much he is responsible for Rasmus Anderson's team-worst goals against per 60 minutes. Did you know that? I did not know that. Rasmus Anderson has allowed more goals per 60 minutes than anyone else in a Flames jersey this year, and his minus 14 is the second-worst on the roster as well. He has played with Giordano much of this year. Give me your thoughts on that. That's interesting. I didn't know that he was minus 14 and, and Flames worst for goals against per 60 minutes. That's that's interesting. That's surprising. I When I watch Rasmus Anderson, I always think of him as an offensive defenseman prototype. Kind of that guy who's going to, you know, shoot the puck when he gets a lane or, you know, be able to pass the puck to, to some good players. He's going to be always offensively focused. So the fact that he's maybe not necessarily as defensively responsible as uh, you would expect him to be is not surprising for me. And I think, like, with the Flames, and they gave him a, a fairly substantial contract. He's getting paid $4.5 bucks for another five seasons, I think. So he's he's definitely expected to play those top minutes, kind of playing in the top four, either with Hannafin or with Mark Giordano. But 
what we've seen in the NHL with Shane Gostisbehere from the Philadelphia Flyers, who was waived recently. Yeah, he was going on waivers. Is that if you have, you can have all the offensive talent in the world, but if you're a defenseman and you can't play defense, there's not a place for you in the NHL. It's not. The NHL has really fallen in love with mobile puck moving defensemen, but not that much. Essentially, you obviously need to be able to hold your own in your own zone and if you can't that will be an issue and certainly for Rasmus Anderson as a 24 year old former second round pick drafted in the same year as Majapani 53rd overall this is a troubling development for a guy who's been taking encouraging steps forward in the last two years I in my opinion and in the opinion of a lot of Flames fans that I have heard from and some analysts that I have read so to, to see this happen to him is not a great sign and Again, I we don't I don't want to throw Giordano under the bus and insinuate that it's primarily Giordano's fault that Anderson is getting exposed. What I do think is that it'll be very interesting to see what he does once Giordano probably leaves sooner rather than later or gets relegated to a reduced role. See what he does playing with somebody else. Yeah, here's my particular perspective is that I think that Calgary Flames need to shake up their lines a little bit. I think that I want I would like to see Anderson and Hannafin play together right. instead of Anderson and Giordano because like with Mark Giordano he was kind of the offensive defenseman when he was playing with TJ Brody and TJ Brody was kind of more of that No, TJ Brody was the offensive defenseman are, for are, sure. Are you sure? I believe so. Like Giordano has Giordano at his prime was a a well-rounded two-way defenseman. I think he could play either role. TJ Brody I could be wrong. I have always thought of TJ Brody as an offensive defenseman. Every scouting report I've ever read on him pegs him as an offensive defenseman. Weird. And I do remember seeing him at his worst turn the puck over a lot. So I guess, yeah, well, okay, here's my thing. With the Toronto Maple Leafs, TJ Brody is the defensive defenseman when playing with, that so? with Morgan Riley. See, that honestly is a, that's honestly surprising to me because I'm not familiar with that version of TJ Brody. No, Morgan Riley is the one who is jumping up into the play, who is pinching unnecessarily, sometimes giving away a lot of two-on-ones, and it has been made known in Toronto media that TJ Brody has been exceptional on two-on-ones defending. Interesting. Like, he's, he's had an exceptional year defensively, and he's by far the most defensive and best player that... Morgan Riley has ever played with and you know TJ Brody he's always on the ice in the last minute when nursing a lead usually with another defensive defenseman like Jake Muzzin or uh, uh, Justin Hall or sometimes Zach Bogosian but usually TJ Brody is in the defensive zone in the last few minutes so when I think of TJ Brody I think of a strong solid two-way defenseman that is much more defensive. Mm. That's that's mm. that's my perspective. So when I think of TJ Brody, I think of that TJ Brody, and I apply it to the Giordano situation, and I think of him as the defensive defenseman in this situation. You know, that's very, very fascinating to me. It's entirely possible that... Well, first of all, it's entirely possible that I'm wrong. I will admit that right now. Right. It is entirely possible also that perhaps Brody, as he's now 30 years of age he is perhaps more willing to adjust his game to fit the needs of his new team. Because after all, 
100%. He's a great skater. He definitely can run the power play, and he can log a lot of ice time. Maybe what's happened is that in Calgary, he was more offensive, and he tried to do that more because he was playing with Giordano. And frankly, Giordano for sure could be a rock or he could jump up into the play. Morgan Riley is an offensive catalyst, and maybe Brody has has really just evolved as, as a defenseman. And if so, good on him. That's yeah. it's, it's immensely encouraging to see players get older and become capable of adjusting themselves. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. I, I wonder, I wish I watched more Calgary Flames games to see TJ Brody last year in Calgary, because, like you said, like, Calgary Flames fans were notoriously upset with TJ Brody for turning the puck over and, and lackluster defensive play. So I guess like my my main point is to get back to Rasmus Anderson is I would like to see him with Noah Hannafin to see what Rasmus Anderson can do with a more defensively minded defenseman, so to speak, because I think Mark Giordano is more offensive than Noah Hannafin is. So I would like to see Anderson and Hannafin play with each other just to see what Anderson will look like with a more sturdy stay-at-home defensive partner than maybe Giordano was used to. For sure. Now, let's move on to a few moves that could take place before the trade deadline. It's definitely not a slam dunk, especially not in an era of a flat salary cap. Mm -hmm. But to me, the biggest name here is David Riddick. Yeah. 28-year-old pending unrestricted free agent could certainly bring some value as a former All-Star. Now, he's not elite. He's got a 2.9 goals against average and a 9.04 save percentage in 15 starts. Refer back to what you were saying about save percentage. That's a little bit higher than Hutchinson Mm -hmm. last year. But he certainly has the talent to steal a few games and perform well in spurts, like a Thomas Grice in New York. And he also has just a 2.75 million dollar cap hit. Mm -hmm. That's quite affordable for a... 2B, 2A, 1B type of a fringe starting goalie and I did a little digging and it's been said that Washington even though they don't have much cap space might want a veteran presence to go with their two young goalies. Ilya Samsonov is 24, Vitek Vanacek is 25. Both those guys have played well this year but it's a valid question how viable will either of them be in the playoffs as younger guys especially for goalies and Riddick could certainly bring a stabilizing presence, not only as insurance, as a, as a backup, but also as veteran leadership in that goalie room. And Washington has all of their picks this upcoming year, except they're third and their seventh. So if this trade were to take place, the Flames could, in theory, get a high-to-mid draft pick as, as part of that. Again, it's not a sure thing due to Washington's Darth of Cap space, but mm-hmm. certainly something to think about. Yeah, another team that I think could be in, in on Riddick is the Toronto Maple Leafs. Ah, I, I was going to ask you that question, yeah, and you beat me to it. Yeah, there were some there are some people that think that, like, Hutchinson and Campbell, that's not necessarily what you want going down the stretch into the playoff race. Cause every, I'm assuming Hutchinson is doubted more than Campbell at this point. Yeah, 100%, right? Like, Hutchinson, he's given the Leafs surprisingly good goaltending, and I think, like, that's been welcomed, and... I think everybody's happy with that, but how long can you rely on Michael Hutchinson to give you good quality goaltending? That's a that's a legitimate concern for I think Leafs fans and Leafs management. Uh, Campbell has been in and out of the lineup, even though he's he played yesterday. Campbell will oftentimes play a game and then he won't 
dress. Like, he won't even dress as the backup because the Leafs don't even want to risk him going in in case there's a goalie that needs to get pulled or mm. Hutchinson lets in a whole bunch of goalies. So they have Vevi Vevelainen, who they got in a trade for. Oh, well, that's interesting. So even despite Campbell's wins, he's not necessarily trusted in every situation. No, he's he's. there are legitimate health concerns right now. And uh, briefly, Frederick Anderson went on IR. And he's kind of off and on it kind of now. And nobody knows exactly what happened. The report for Frederick Anderson out from The Athletic was that Frederick Anderson came back from injury too early, re-aggravated his injury, and then kept playing because Campbell was out, and the Leafs kind of needed that goaltender, which is part of why they went through that stretch where they had six losses in seven games because Frederick Anderson was just simply not healthy and not able to move and stuff like that. So there's legitimate injury concerns with the Toronto Maple Leafs, which is why David Riddick is rumored in the conversation. Right, and you guys are willing to give up Tavares in a second in return for him, right? Well, as long as you take his contract. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but realistically, as a Leafs fan, if this if this swings, or if this conversation takes place, what do you think the Leafs might offer in return that could be considered potentially fair value? Second round pick and a low middling prospect. You know, so not Tavares in a second. No, Darn. no. <laughs> like I'm thinking, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking like a second round pick, uh, a prospect that was maybe not taken in the first round. Like you're not getting a Rasm or a Sandine or Lilligren or even a Mikhail Abramov or or Nick Robertson. You might be able to swing like a second round pick and a Joey Anderson or a Philip Hollander, kind of like some of those. B-tier prospects that the Leafs have and a second-round pick sure. for Riddick. I think that's kind of what you're thinking. And that's certainly quite plausible. And I would also like to point out that the Colorado Avalanche backup, Pavel Francouz, was hurt last summer during the playoffs and again this January, which forced that team to play third-string Hunter Miska. So the Avalanche, another potential option for Riddick to go to if they decide that Francouz is too much of a question mark. Yeah, Pavel Francouz, he's been on LTIR since the beginning of the year. Hasn't played this year. And Philip Grubar, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's played the most games in the NHL this year for goalies. And I think, like... I don't know off the top of my head, but if his backup has been missing that much time and they're, they're having to spot in a third string, it certainly would not surprise me. Oh, he's on pace for 47 games played yeah. in about 55, so there you go. Yeah, he's played he's played 32 games up until this point, and that's more than second, which is Connor Hellebuck, who has 31. So, Philip Grubauer, he's played the most games in the NHL for goalies, so definitely giving some goalie relief there would be good for the Colorado Avalanche, and I think that they would be smart to target another goalie while Pavel Frankuz is still hurt, still on LTIR. And, you know, there are a lot of goalies that are hurt right now, like Darcy Kemper in Arizona. He's hurt. Uh, Leafs goalies, they seem to be hurt a lot. And, um, you know, just some inconsistent play from like guys like Sergei Bobrovsky even. Goalies are at a premium here in this COVID NHL year. So I think you can get some good value for David Reddick. And another guy that I would just like to point out as a potential trade target would maybe be Michael Stone. Uh, he's played extremely well since coming back from his blood clot uh, in the last few games. 
and maybe Michael Stone wouldn't entertain a trade from Calgary, but you know he's played well. He's a right shot D, and he's on an expiring contract with league minimum. That sounds like something that maybe a contending team would be willing to give up. Depth insurance. A, a low round pick for mm. for Michael Stone to be like that that fourth defenseman in a playoff push in case you know you need another depth right shot defenseman. And with that said, I want to talk about Sam Bennett now. And as a, Fl- a Flames fans, I think at this point are cringing when they talk about <laughs> Sam Bennett. This one, 24 years old, he's clearly been a disappointment in relation to his draft position. The man picked one spot behind Leon Dreisaitl is on pace to finish with just six goals and 14 points and a team worst minus 22. <laughs> That's not good. I wish... One spot, man. One spot, man. <laughs> or if Calgary had a crystal ball and just picked Pasternak instead. I don't know. I don't know, right? <laughs> but yeah. look, his value lies in his grit. He's definitely physical, and he is one of those guys that battles, at the very least, or tries to battle when things get tough. He can play both wing and center, so there's some versatility, and he certainly has a tendency to elevate in the playoffs. What do I mean? I'm talking about 19 points in 30 career postseason games, 8 in 10 last year in that loss to the Dallas Stars. Now, one interesting caveat to point out about Bennett is that he's got a cap hit of $2.55 million. That's not bad, but he's a pending restricted free agent with arbitration rights. Mm -hmm. And what that essentially means is that this offseason, Sam Bennett's agent can put forth a contract offer The team that signs him could put forth a contract offer, and a neutral third party would, based on that, decide what Bennett's contract actually becomes. And so that is an issue that potential trade partners want to consider because it could make him costlier than meets the eye to actually retain. Yeah, with Sam Bennett, I think we have to be realistic at what he is right now. Like you said, he's on pace for six goals. Um, That's not good. Kind of when I think of Sam Bennett, when if you're a Stanley Cup contending team, Sam Bennett is a $2.5 million fourth liner. And I'm just not convinced right now that there's a team that can take on that salary in this environment and make a trade that works, even if Calgary retains 50% of the salary. And especially with the arbitration rights in play later right. on. Right. And I mean, the team that acquires Sam Bennett doesn't necessarily have to re-sign him. They can just choose to not offer him a qualifying sure. contract, choose to not accept the arbitration rights and let Sam Bennett go and become an unrestricted free agent, they can certainly choose to do so. But with Sam Bennett, it's kind of like, would you rather have you know, a $2.5 million fourth liner or try and get a guy who's making league minimum off waivers? Yeah, is the difference between those two significant enough to warrant it? That's a fair question. Right, and I think in a in a world where teams that are going for it, like the Toronto Maple Leafs, have no cap space, right. and teams that don't have the cap or that do have the cap space don't have the money to pay for this player, I think it's going to be really hard to see a situation where Sam Bennett is no longer a Calgary Flame. And. Again, time will tell, but certainly can't argue with any of those points. He's, shall we say, value is limited at best at this point. Now, why haven't we talked about the big guys yet? The Cadros, Monahans, 
Kachuk's Lynn Holmes from a from a trading standpoint. And I just want to quickly touch on that area before we move on. And it again comes back to the flat salary cap. There's not much cap space to go around in the NHL in general right now, and which means that if you were to try to shop any of those players as Brad Tree Living, anyone who's potentially interested would probably be trying their best to drive the price down because they simply can't afford to swing anything big. And so if you are Brad Tree Living, it certainly makes more sense to hold that off until the offseason. And the same goes for every other GM in the league because this offseason, every team will be looking to make moves of some kind and not just the contenders. And everyone will hopefully have a better grasp on their own cap situation and the evolving cap situation for the whole league next year. So we're going to have to, you know, as much as I know that there's a lot of Calgary fans out there that are very frustrated with Gaudreau and Monaghan in particular, and I've been thinking about those guys getting out the door for quite some time probably, it is more than likely that for all teams, this year's trade deadline is not going to be too dramatic. It's going to be a lot of moving depth players, rentals, and picks. And the off season is where we're more likely to see a lot of these franchise-altering trades taking place. Yeah, like when you look at Johnny Gaudreau, he's at $6.75 million for this year and next. So that's definitely a significant amount of money that teams will have to take on next season that I don't necessarily think they're prepared to do. Sean Monaghan, 6.375 for two years after this one. And Michael Backlund, 5.35 for three years after this one. That's a big chunk of money, especially if the Calgary Flames aren't willing to retain any salary, that teams simply don't have that kind of money right now. And even if they did have that type of money, I don't think they want to take on that type of contract and pay that out because it's just a reality of the situation that there are a lot of NHL teams that are losing money by playing games this year because of COVID and fans aren't allowed in the stands. So I think that's, that's a real thing and that's a real issue. So when we look at this Calgary Flames team, the reality is is that there's just not going to be any moves at the trade deadline that involve these big contracts. It's just too much money, and teams aren't going to be willing to do it. It'll have to be an off-season thing. And we would like now to finish off this episode by talking about another trade-related mm-hmm. topic. This time in the NFL world, Sam Darnold, New York Jets, what just happened? So Sam Darnold from the New York Jets was traded to the Carolina Panthers for a sixth-round pick this year, a second-round pick the next year, and that same year, the second-round pick, so next year, a fourth-round pick. So a sixth this year, a second and a fourth the year after. So there are two ways to kind of look at this. You look at this from the Jets' perspective. They're sitting here at the draft at number two. It's very clear to everybody now that the New York Jets want to draft a quarterback second overall and they want to get a new quarterback in whether that's Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, we're not sure, we'll have to wait and see and we can talk about that when we come back in our next episode if we might but it's very clear now for the New York Jets direction is that they want to go young, they want to get a new quarterback and with Sam Darnold now leaving they actually get three potentially new assets to come in Uh, that second round pick actually most notably something fairly significant because kind of the rumors were out there is that 
there were a lot of teams that were not willing to give up more than a fourth round pick this year for Sam Darnold. Mm. So the fact that the Jets were able to get a second round pick, even though it's not in this draft, it's in the next year's draft. And two more. And a fourth and a sixth really gives the Jets some value, considering that they've now decided to move on from Sam Darnold. And I think that overall the Jets moving Sam Darnold gives them more draft picks, more chances to get some good players at other positions of need. And I think it'll be really good for the Jets going forward now that kind of Sam Darnold is kind of out of their hair. They can start over and get that new guy some chances to play. And it's tough to win in New York. I think that's very clear. It's a very demanding market for any football program. So... For any sports franchise in general. For any sports franchises in general. So it'll be good for Sam Darnold and the Jets to kind of part ways here as I think it's been clear that it's been a tough time and a tumultuous year, few years for Sam Darnold. Now, for the Carolina Panthers, I think that what we have to understand is that it's a significantly different outlook. And I think the best way is that we can describe Sam Darnold is that we need to look at his environment that he was in in New York. And the best way I can kind of describe it is, is like, I'm a big believer in environment and how that kind of affects and changes players. For example, I want to bring up and talk about quickly uh, Ray Lewis, who he grew up in an incredibly impoverished neighborhood in Florida. His mom had him when he was 15. His dad wasn't really around. He really had a tough time, and he grew up in one of the roughest times and roughest areas in South Florida. And it actually got to the point where it was so bad that his mom had to give him away, simply because mm. his mom couldn't afford to feed him. So Ray Lewis actually went to go and, and live with his grandma for a bit in Florida while his mom went and worked in Tennessee. So when you think about Ray Lewis, and we go in, into this situation, it, like he is in, in an extremely difficult background in an extremely difficult environment but he always said that his mom was there his mom his grandma mm. was there and those two people really helped ray lewis stay out of that bad stuff in the neighborhood be able to keep right. him on that right path and you know he was playing call or high school football and he had a really good last game but unfortunately they lost in the semifinals of the playoffs and he didn't get any scholarship offers, and it was four days before signing day. And the Miami Doll, or sorry, the Miami Hurricanes came up to him and said, "Hey, listen, we were actually out scouting another player at your game, but we really liked what we brought you, so we wanted to give you a full ride scholarship to the University of Miami." And Ray Lewis went to the University of Miami with a pair of jeans, three white T-shirts, a pack of pencils, two folders. And, gra- and his grandma gave him $20 worth of food stamps and said, I'm sorry, but this is all I can give you. Wow. And Ray Lewis said, it's all right, I'll make it. And, and he sure did. And he sure did. And when you think about, he also shares a little bit about this in his book, where he talks about how his, his brothers on the team really helped him that first year, especially like his teammates let him borrow clothes and they helped give him some food and stuff when he was needing to. So with Ray Lewis, you think about this horrible environment that he was growing up with but he always had support whether it was his mom his grandma or his supporting teammates now when we look at sam darnold in new york it's very clear to me that he did not have that same support (laughs) you know uh, you mean adam gase is not really that great of a coach what a surprise (laughs) yikes so with with the new york jets there's some been some disputes with ownership 
Uh, Woody and Charles Johnson both own the team, and there's been some conflict on who gets to make those final decisions. Uh, a year into Sam Darnold's career, they fired their general manager, they fired Todd Bowles, the head coach, and they brought in Joe Douglas, who's a rookie general manager, and they brought in Adam Gase. And kind of ever since Adam Gase has been there, it's been a really tough time for Sam Darnold in New York because I, I think the best way we can kind of look at Adam Gase is that he had that 2013 year as the Broncos offensive coordinator where Peyton Manning had that exceptional year and broke all the records. But that's kind of what made Adam Gase's career, and that's why he got so many head coaching jobs in, in Miami and, right. and in New York. But when Adam Gase left Miami and Ryan Tannehill became the quarterback of the Titans, it showed everybody that, oh, Ryan Tannehill is significantly better after Adam Gase. I want to see what Sam Darnold can do outside of Adam Gase with a team that isn't nearly as bad as the Jets were. Because, <laughs> Frankly, yes. Because let's let's be real here. Sam Darnold did not have a tight end to throw to. His offensive line was really bad. Robbie Anderson and Jamison Crowder were his two best receivers during that time, and the Jets couldn't re-sign Robbie Anderson last year. So, And Jamison Crowder has been in and out of the lineup with injuries. So it's been really tough for Sam, and I don't think that anybody could succeed in his situation in New York. So I want to see what he can do in a new environment with a new chance and a new team. I certainly can't argue with any of that, and I just wanted to bring some, some context for what Darnold did do in New York, numbers-wise, 45 touchdowns to 39 interceptions, a so far career passer rating 76.8, that's not great, and his career completion percentage is 59.8%. So he's had some struggles. His best season was 2019, where he went 19 touchdowns and 13 interceptions, which is hardly spectacular. But you know what, Tyson, as we were talking about in the truck earlier, College quarterbacks, in particular highly touted college quarterbacks, are thrown into very tough environments on a regular basis. They're essentially asked to save these struggling franchises like New York was, like Cleveland has been for a long time, although not anymore. And that's just a lot of pressure, first of all, to put on a 21, 22-year-old kid. And frankly... For those that don't know, college football is oftentimes a very subpar place to develop NFL talent for a variety of reasons. First of all, the discrepancy in skill between teams is often so great that players aren't tested as nearly as stiffly as they would be in the NFL. A lot of college teams are built, obviously, to win in the short term because they only have these guys for two, three, four years at most. Mm -hmm. And so they will scheme guys open. They will implement simplified game plans that work for their personnel. And particularly for the quarterback position, they will simplify things for quarterbacks on a lot of occasions. Simple reads, you don't need to read the whole field. First receiver or second receiver, and then you run or you throw it away kind of a situation. And for young quarterbacks to come from that and go to the NFL, where not only where defenses are much, much, much better, but they're also asked to face much more sophisticated defensive schemes, read the whole field, and execute more complicated and nuanced game plans, 
that's just that's just a hard ask for the for for anyone and I think if you then add in a negative environment that Darnold was in, it's it's hardly a surprise that he has been middling so far in his career. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Let me ask you this, okay? I'm going to give you option A and option B, okay? Option A, you get a quarterback. He's 23 years old, okay? Top five pick. He's been in the NFL for three years. In those three years, he was giving no offensive line, a washed-up running back, and essentially no wide receivers to throw to. He's been dealing with some injuries. He's missed a lot of games in his, in his three years. Nothing too serious, though. But overall, his development has been stunted by a bad environment around him. That's option A. Option B is a quarterback 24 years old, also a top five pick. Uh, this quarterback has played half a season so far. In that first half of the season that the quarterback played, was pretty good, put up some good numbers, had a few wins, uh, but then had a career-altering injury. Not a career-threatening, career-altering, where this player may or may not be ready for week one of next season. He is going to be rehabbing all summer. He's not going to be able to get better. He's not going to be able to develop this offseason because he's going to be nursing a knee injury. The knee injury is a torn ACL plus extra damage. That's quarterback B. Who would you choose? Uh, Patrick Mahomes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Honestly, uh, my gut says I'd pick the second option. I'd pick option B, and here's why. Is that both of these players are, a set, are, are damaged goods from an athletic standpoint, but quarterback B has not had the opportunity to be traumatized in terms of his confidence mm. by things like a bad offensive line, which almost certainly means he has been beat up a lot. Already quarterback A, no offensive line, has been beat up a lot. Washed up running back and no receivers. He probably doesn't know how to trust his teammates, which will make him hesitant on pulling, throwing 50-50 balls that often decide the outcome of drives and even games. Whereas quarterback B, yes, the injury is significant, but... To me, he's in all likelihood, he's still more raw. His development has been slowed, but it hasn't been stunted in the same way. And there's a higher chance that as long as my team doesn't need to rely on him to save the franchise, we could be in a position to help him rehab and then try to teach him how to continue to build good habits in the NFL rather than having to work to undo a lot of these bad habits. Like I think the Indianapolis Colts are going to have to help Carson Wentz overcome a lot of bad habits that he has has adopted and his body can no longer get him through. But in your scenario with quarterback B, unless there's you know more relevant information that's yet to be shared here, he is probably more coachable and probably more confident that he can come back and be somebody. Yeah, I think most people kind of looking at that situation would probably choose quarterback B. And to reveal you the faces, quarterback A is Sam Darnold. Quarterback B is Joe Burrow. And a lot of people look at Joe Burrow right now as a franchise quarterback and he is going to save the Cincinnati Bengals and the Bengals don't have a good offensive line and they just let AJ Green walk in free agency so they have you know T Higgins and uh, Tyler Boyd so they have some good receivers there but they don't have a tight end they don't have an offensive lineman Joe Mixon is good but always hurt so when we kind of look at this idea like 
removing the names from this conversation allows me to see like Sam Darnold and Joe Burrow. Yes, I would take Joe Burrow, but when you kind of like remove the name cachet, it's a lot closer than I think I would have realized. It's more nuanced for sure, and sports is a nuanced thing. Drafting is a nuanced thing. Player development is a nuanced thing. The environment is just one of those many X factors that can really make or break somebody's career as a professional athlete, temperament, team culture, all of these things. They, they factor in, right? And so I, I would be cautiously optimistic that going to the Carolina Panthers, a team with a with more talent for sure, is going to at least, at the very least, hopefully help Darnold regain a bit of confidence, help him to realize, hey, I have people that I can rely on more than I did in New York. I have a change of pace as my coach. And this is a franchise that... If, six, seven years ago, made it all the way to the Super Bowl. And so winning is in the recent memory of the Panthers staff the way that it isn't in the Jets. Mm -hmm. So all of these are good, are theoretically good things, but let me now show you a, a a stat that does not necessarily bode well for what the Jets are getting out of this trade. They certainly have gotten more value than expected with these three picks that they got for Darnold. The problem is the Jets have not exactly been great or even good at converting their picks into meaningful assets. What do I mean? Well, let's take a look at every single one of their first round picks from 2012 to 2018, which is where Sam Darnold was was drafted. We obviously know that Darnold is gone. Oh no. But let's go all the way back to 2012. Quinton Copels. Cut, they cut him, he's now retired. 2013, D. Milliner. They cut him, he's now retired. 2013, Sheldon Richardson. They traded him, he's in Cleveland now, and probably happy that he's in Cleveland instead of New York. The year after, Calvin Pryor traded, he's now retired, he's not even 30 yet. No. 2015, Leonard Williams traded to the rival New York Giants. That's not a great look for someone you, trade, you drafted in the top 10. 2016, Darren Lee traded. He's now a free agent without a job. 2017, what Jamal Adams went through in his breakup with the Chess has been well documented, and he's now a Seahawk. Yep. These are all first-round picks. The picks that you really need to be hitting on. Most of them top 10. Exactly. You need to be hitting on these at... at at least at least 50%. At least 50%. It's a, if I can make a baseball reference, your batting average has to be competitive mm-hmm. on your first round draft picks. We've just talked a lot about how nuanced this can be and how college can be a very difficult place to reliably develop NFL talent. Nonetheless, the good teams are able to do it at a respectable clip, and the bad teams like the Jets miss early and they miss often so if you're a Jets fan you're probably hoping that the front office is going to be able to get it together here and actually convert these assets none of which are anything as valuable as top 10 pick by the way but you better be praying that they're they, that they're going to learn to convert these assets and their other future draft picks in a much more respectable manner going forward yeah I think whenever you draft it's always important that you get something in each draft, it doesn't matter where you get it. Certainly, 
with this whole batting average thing as far as your draft picks you don't you, you're right you don't have to hit on your first rounder necessarily but you do need to get something for example Derek Carr second round pick back in 2014 is he a first team all pro no but for most of his career he's been a more than serviceable starting quarterback Devonte Adams second round pick top three receiver in the NFL and some guys even go later than that and become gems. Yeah, so like Richard Sherman went in the fifth round, and that year the Seahawks missed on their first round pick. They tried it, they swung and missed on an offensive tackle, but like Richard Sherman was taking the fifth round, and and you know it worked out real well for the Seahawks drafting Richard Sherman in round five. So you don't have to hit on your first round pick every year, but you want to get at least one, maybe two guys a draft that can really impact your team positively. And I think if you're unable to do that, then it's really going to set your team back. I just thought of another example, David Bakhtiari, round four back in 2013, and he is now one of the best left tackles in the game. So you're definitely right. You essentially need to keep that pipeline going. Mm -hmm. And if it's not your first rounders, it's got to be somebody that you're able to find. And, of course, finding a diamond in the rough is some ways even harder than hitting on a on a first round pick that's at least highly touted sometimes but nonetheless we will have to see how things shake out for both Carolina and New York here the Jets their priorities off their priority is obvious rather they need to learn how to draft better and develop better with Carolina it will be interesting to see how that change of pace affects Sam Darnold and whether or not he's able to capture or recapture some of the potential that had him touted as an early first round pick coming out of USC. But that will do it for us today on the draft board. We really hope that you enjoyed hanging out with us today and we can't wait to see you again. But for Tyson Workington, my name is David Song and we will see you later.